Hey everybody, welcome to Giant Bomb Presents. I am Austin Walker, and I'm here again with one of our new guest contributors. Today I have uh, Bruno Diaz here. Welcome. Hello, uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited to have you uh, writing for us on the site. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. And you're calling in from, uh, from Brazil, right? Yeah, from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Great. Awesome. Uh, it, was, it was, you know, one of the things that, that I really wanted to do with the, with the guest writer program was to make sure we got some people who are not just from the States, um, because it yeah. turns out people all over the world play games. Brazil is... Yeah, a, surprisingly. A, yeah. Who knew? Who knew that games right. were... Yeah, like 200 million people. <laughs> some of them play video games. It turns it's, out. Uh, you know, my understanding is... terrifying. Brazil is actually a kind of a rapidly growing um, uh, market for games. Um, yeah. And I don't want to like just dig into that too much because that's not what I think is the interesting yeah, thing about. What my piece is about is not at all. Uh, that's what I'm here to talk about because right. don't presume that I am an expert on the market because I'm not. <laughs> right. In the same way that it turns out that that there are people who play games in a giant country like Brazil, it also yeah. turns out that the only things they have to talk about aren't just that they happen to be from Brazil. Right. So, yeah. The piece you did write for us though was. Uh, uh, it's a piece called A Garden of Bodies, which is a, a fantastic title, and I think there's a lot of really great writing in it um, in general, uh, about environmental storytelling through the the use of, of bodies, through the u- use of corpses in games, but also environmental storytelling as itself uh, a history of death um, and, and the way in which those techniques have been caught up with a certain mode of storytelling across the history of of games and also kind of across the history of interactive fiction, which I which I think you touch on a little bit here, referencing games like Galatea, um, which I think was was fascinating because I know that you have kind of a background in in IF in interactive I fiction. Come from the interactive fiction community. That's sort of my avenue into games and game writing. Mm-hmm. So uh, obviously Galatea, full disclosure, I should say, uh, <laughs> Emily Short's a friend of mine. Sure. Um, so this is stuff that I essentially grew up with and have been playing for a very long time. I only really got involved making those games, those types of games, yeah. around last year. What, so for people who don't know about IF, about interactive fiction, like what is the, this is like an impossible question maybe, but like right, what, is right. the, what is the pitch for someone who has only played what we think of as quote-unquote traditional video games? Okay, so... Interactive fiction, as I like to define it, is the intersection between video games and literature. Okay. Right? So you have video games that communicate with the player primarily through text, through, through prose, usually fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what that means is that you can do things that are impossible, literally cannot be done in a traditional video game. Uh, my favorite example of this is also an Emily Short piece called Counterfeit Monkey, which in which you have this it's an adventure game right you, there's a game world that you explore and you pick up objects and you interact with them it's similar to monkey island or grim fandang or any adventure game like that but it's text so your main way of interacting with the world is this device called the letter remover mm-hmm. right so you point you set the letter remover to a particular letter you point it at an object and it takes away the letter so if you had say uh a piece of chard, right? Chard isn't the, the vegetable. Yep. Uh, you could set the letter remover to R and you would point R, the, the remover at it, and it would become Chad. So it turns into a bro. <laughs> and so you could yeah. put, take out the H and it would become a CAD. So it becomes like a Victorian asshole. Right. 
And you take out the you A, cannot, it becomes a CD, yeah, and exactly. then you can write. Yeah, and the game actually has all of those objects implemented in them. Right. You can literally do this to everything you encounter. And that is impossible to do in, in, uh, in a visual game because the cost of producing all those assets would be astronomical. Right. Even something like Scribblenauts, which has like uh, gestures towards that sort of dictionary-driven thing, uh, right. has, has kind of severe limitations um, in the sense that like there are visual and mechanical representations of these things, but there is a real limit as to like what that game what the, the the conflicts and what the obstacles and problems that you're solving in that game can can be you know it's at its best when something is really strictly designed around solutions um yeah. but but yeah like i i think that that's a fascinating way of it, thinking about about the ways in which te- technical limitations on games encourage a certain sort of and discourage certain sorts of play and I should point out, like, obviously, I go to wordplay because it's an easy example, but right. there are many, many things that are very difficult to do. Like, in IF, you can, do the, you can deal with the interiority of the player character in a way that you cannot in other types of games. In that, like, in, this, in that there it, can be a written monologue about what the player character is thinking? Right. Not just that, but, like, because you control, like, prose is such a much more direct way of communicating with the player, strangely enough, because you can impart, um, you can tone things very differently. So you can imply things about the, the player character in the way in which you describe something or in the way in which you communicate something mm-hmm. that you cannot do in a traditional visual uh, video game sure. because that visual representation is presumed to be a quote-unquote objective, right? It's, right, or like, you know, if I, if I walk into a space in Dark Souls and I see how the there's a, a dining table that has that has uh you know uh, some some plates on it and and a chalice and then there's a large knight walking through a hallway down the you know uh, a few paces away from that um i as the player have to interpret that a certain way whereas as a as a piece of interactive fiction with prose writing even the amount of attention given to how much exactly. the, the plate the you know the cutlery is described can communicate something about the world and about the player character and what they're spending attention on stuff like that that's fascinating and i, I think you, you kind of illustrate this with a really what i think is actually a really beautiful metaphor um in the in the piece you wrote which is that if you want to make a video game that is about a king and is about about the interiority of of or in part wants to deal with the interiority the the kind of character of a king um, it is very hard to do it with the tools that we have at our at, at hand because throughout the history of, of traditional video games, the tools that we've had developed are often about things like um, uh, you know environmental design, geometry, um, uh, action, combat, things like that, and right. not um, necessarily I about. Should- point out though that i'm not saying this is like oh this is a technical shortcoming sure no it's i'm a saying quality. this is yeah this is the texture of the medium essentially totally. it was um, the same similar way, but... to the way in which film has a really difficult time with interiority totally because it you know you're observing this world from an external you know quote unquote uh, floating point of view totally as uh, opposed to a novel which is explicitly being given from inside the head of this, these characters and the point you're, you you make here though is that is that this is why it's important that environmental storytelling be take take that into account in the sense that good environmental storytelling can replace or, or not necessarily replace but but that is an advantage um that that traditional video games have over a, a, a certain advantage is the wrong word. It's a quality that they, that they have. It's um, a tool. That, it's a tool in, in that the they toolbox have access that, to 
that yeah. many other forms don't have. And so instead of building the instead of reading the the monologue that the that the king writes, or instead of inst- or, or, or you know says on a stage, or instead of reading the instead of getting the uh, the hefty voiceover, right, explaining the motivation of the character, you have you have the an power design of the that, palace, and that's yeah, the thing exactly. there. You know, you you don't necessarily have access to the king's. Uh, direct thoughts, but you have access to the palace that he chose to live in, and that can communicate a lot about who that character is when it's done well. Um, and and so I, I think that that is for me one of the most effective analogies I've, I've seen for why environmental storytelling done well can be so effective. Um, and and you know that that to me has been has been something that's made me rethink about why it is I, I enjoy some of the games I, I do. Uh, for you, what are the games that, that do this really well? Um, I am obligated to bring up Dark Souls. <laughs> okay. I'm I have just, this we're just in the- it right now, right? Yeah, I have this theory that every discussion about game design will eventually bring up either Zork, Dark Souls, or uh, a roguelike of some sort. Sure. It, 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 it always comes up. Um, and Dark Souls obviously does this really, really well because it's really, really spare. It, mm. it really doesn't make that much of an effort to ensure that the player gets it. Um, it also does it really, really well because it has this amazing discipline of design throughout it that means that you understand things in Dark Souls in a way that you do not in other games. Because everything in Dark Souls obeys certain design rules that ensure that you will understand them. Can you give so, me an example of that? Um, my example that comes straight from the piece is the, the fact that every single object, every one of them, all of them, in Dark Souls that you find that is just hovering there, lying on the ground for you to pick up, is on a corpse. Mm. All of them. You can go over the entire game. There are two exceptions, which are not on a regular corpse. They're <laughs> on, uh, and you will only realize this if you're someone like me who has like 70 hours logged into that game. Uh, but for the remainder of the game, every single thing is on a corpse. Right. So the game is signaling um, a very particular understanding of item placement for the player. Right? Like, you are, not, you are never supposed to think, oh, someone left this here deliberately. You are never supposed to think, oh, this was manufactured. No, you are always supposed to think, uh, someone was carrying this thing and died. Right. A person had this. Yeah, a person had this. And... They're right there. They're this dead body here. And You're never taking a sword off of a shelf or off of a from above yeah, a mantle. Like yeah, that exactly. doesn't happen. In fact, like there are times where you see a sword yes. like on a shelf lying there, but it's just a physics object. You can't interact with it. You can't grab it. Right. What's that saying metaphysically, in a sense, about about the world of Dark Souls? About what counts? It's only things that people right. have touched, right? Yeah, and died with specifically. Right. There's yeah. this. Yeah, there's this mystic that comes to the objects of like, you are literally just dressing yourself in the shrouds of corpses right. throughout this game. Which like, is like that's such a different, it communicates something so much different than the division, which does literally the same thing, right? Of I, That's not exactly the same, because I guess there are chests in the world of the division that you can loot for guns. But so oh, There are of, chests in Dark Souls as well. Sure, you're right, there are. But they're not, uh, like I said... You never find something just lying there. It's always either a chest or a corpse. Mm-hmm. And the chests signal something different from the corpses. Uh, the chests generally are telling you, oh, this is something valuable that someone thought was important Enough and to decided put in to put there. Yeah. yeah, one of my favorite little bits is that like the largest generic soul item in the game. So if you haven't played Dark Souls, uh, there are those 
souls are the currency and the experience in that game. So you have those objects that you can break to get souls mm -hmm. that act as essentially a frozen asset that you can't lose when you die. Right. So the very largest one that you find in the entire game is in a chest, right? And there's this uh, place in Lost Isolith that is just this weird shrine built seemingly to house that extremely large soul. And it's like, you know, this guy came down here. Uh, he probably forgot to put on the orange chart ring and walked into lava. <laughs> but yeah, I did that the other day. It wasn't fun. Um, but he was such a, a badass that we decided to put his soul in a box and, and, and stand guard around it. Mm -hmm. So there's all these implications that come from item placement that are not coming from explicit. There's not even environment design going on. There is literally just where it is in relationship to everything else in the game and uh, pulling from context. Right. What is it, you know, it doesn't just say something about who whose soul that was once. It says something about whoever put that there and about what the uh, almost almost what the characters in that world think of as valuable. Um, really, yeah. which is another example is the way that you know. Obviously, for gameplay reasons, the more dangerous and uh, later game parts of the game have bigger soul items in them. Right. But those soul items, they're not like it doesn't say like small soul, large soul. It says you know soul of a lost and dead, soul right. of a great knight, soul of a Proud soul of a hero, exactly. Right. Yeah. And so the implication is that as you get further across the game. You're encountering people who are increasingly powerful, who are increasingly um, capable, who died, you know, died before getting as far as you got. Right. Or and, you sometimes will find a soul like that early on in the game and think, oh, what a weird tragedy. This, who, yeah. who, how, how did this, how proud, did this proud knight get <laughs> killed in this awful box of a room with a hollow there? Like, right. it doesn't make sense. Right. And sometimes um, you look down and see the corpse, which has been grayed, and and yeah. and like go, oh, okay, like you just didn't look around that corner, like you stupid, stupid fool. Let me take yeah. this soul and this sword from you now. Um, yeah, my favorite one of these is right around the start in Farling Shrine. Mm -hmm. There's a corpse that is just hunched over like the cliff face, right? And it's like, oh, you poor fucker, you almost made it, <laughs> you almost climbed up, but yeah, it did Guess not work not. out. Yeah. So, so there is another thing there that I think is is pretty fascinating, which which kind of builds on this this point of the technical uh, qualities uh, of a medium kind of producing its its set, you know, leading to the set of tools with which developers and or, or creators in any field uh, need to learn how to use. And, and there's this there's this bit where you say that the the kind of technical bent that started out in Zork's time has become cultural and self-perpetuating. Look at the Oculus and other VR headsets, a device designed for looking out rather than looking at. A device designed to immerse in an environment rather than focusing on another subject, place rather than character. And I think that is a, a fair, like, I, I think I'm 80% with you on that. You know, you're, you're kind of suggesting that the design of these devices leads to almost by by teleological necessity but you know or you know from based on the design of the fact that what vr is built to do is make you look at things that is what does or, or look look out at a world it's that's the thing that it place does the player into an environment totally so and we can uh, put that against say the er the uh things like hololens which right. are made for looking at an object right they place an object into your environment which is the opposite right so the thing that i think is fascinating about this is that as VR comes 
into our lives in a in a you know somewhat more substantial way this year. A thing I'm noticing in my own experiences with it, limited experiences with it, is that, and this doesn't run contrary to, to what you're saying here, I think it runs parallel to it, is that there is a limit to how enjoyable looking out is. And I see the smartest developers, maybe that's unfair, but the, the experiences that are catching me are the ones that couple this novelty of looking out at virtual spaces with frankly good writing it's looking at things like some of the demos that ship with the valve yeah uh, i mean i should preface this by saying that i have not i am not one of the people who have been to gdc and south by southwest and pax (laughs) i understand and everything else and have uh, seen a VR demo every other week. Right. Me right? Either, I have for, not, for what it's worth. I've done yeah. VR twice in the last two years or something like that. I'm not uh, so neither of us are speaking definitively here by, by any yeah, means. Like I'm skeptical of VR, to be honest. I don't necessarily think it's going to work out or be a commercial success. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think it's going to attract developers. Um, but I'm not ideological about that. I don't think that people who disagree with me on, the, on this are stupid. I just think we have different assessments of a very murky situation. Totally. But I, but I guess, I guess what, what I'm leading to, to here is that I think it's fascinating that to shore up the, this one lacking that VR has or, or to address this one quality that it has, I've seen developers turn towards writing you know, uh, uh, humorous dialogue um, as a, as a way to not just try to make us make the to, to do more than just lean on the novelty of hey you're in a virtual space hey you have virtual hands um, and and I'm really curious to see over the next year or two how that sort of prose work comes back into traditional video games because it can do something that that the kind of technical side can't necessarily do which is extend experiences. Um, and I, I just thought really, I think that, 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 that one paragraph that you have here just reminded me of that very clearly, right? That like a VR game can't do what Zork does yet because it, it, nothing has been that expansive there. Um, well, walking around in, in the VR technology that we have right now is really sort of an unsolved problem still, mm-hmm. like, uh, I saw, I don't remember the name of it, but that demo with the, where you're only uh, form of movement is teleporting. Yes, there's a couple of those, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there's, it's going to take time for people to figure out how exactly do you have a space that you can navigate in, that you can understand, mm-hmm. and that you can move in, that it feels natural. Uh, you know, like, it took like five years to figure out WAST. <laughs> yeah. Like, literally, it took about five years. If you go back and you play the very earliest first-person games, they had horrendous interfaces it was awful and so i don't really expect that we will see vr that works well in that sense for several years still but i do agree with you that good writing is necessary like you cannot get away with just uh banking on novelty novelty gets old very fast yeah yeah, novelty doesn't exist basically novelty lasts for 15 minutes that's how that's the the lifespan of novelty yeah um the reality is that storytelling in games is, has generally not been treated quite as well as we might hope it should be. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that VR will push towards changing that. I think that is just changing naturally 
as the industry goes through its revolutions right now, we are seeing more and more narrative-centric games uh, do well and right. more of them get made. So I expect VR to follow that trend, but I don't necessarily see that it will lead uh, in that way. No, I don't either. I, I kind of, you know, I think my fear, the reason I'm not jumping on to... The reason, besides not having the money to jump into VR right now, that I'm holding off from jumping yeah, into and, VR. Yeah, and right the now. economics are like the bedrock uh, of my skepticism totally, here. Totally, absolutely. Um, but, but even assuming that, that the devices became cheaper, part of my skepticism is also that there will be so many uh, experiences in, in VR that are just leaning on that, that novelty factor that I, and not doing the sort of world building and, and sort of narrative stuff that I'm interested in. The absolute worst thing that could happen to VR right now is a AAA publisher latching onto it hard. Mm. Like deciding, we are going to throw $200 million at making a VR experience. And that will, that has a decent shot of failing. And when it fails, it will take out the whole industry. <laughs> um, because it disproves that there is money to be made yeah, here. In exactly. that sense. Yeah, exactly. Like some, some, you know, the Heaven's Gate, the movie, not the cult. <sighs> uh, yeah, I used that analogy with someone else the other That's day. Very, it took like... Would, yeah. yeah, it took like 15 minutes for them to figure out, oh, you mean the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. so, so I guess let's, let's link this back to, to storytelling in, in traditional video games and, and environmental design. Uh, do you, what do you think of the ways in which bigger uh, you know, AAA studios utilize the same sorts of techniques not that from software is a is a is not you know um, a major studio at this point, um, but but when you think of things like you know um, developers who work for companies like Take Two, uh, companies like Bethesda, what do you think of of how environmental storytelling works with with those uh, developers? Yeah, I, or is I mean, there is this is that even a fair question? Is there not a continuity there worth addressing as if AAA developers well, are all similar? The AAA development environment is not... They're not obviously identical. They're not obviously all similar. Mm -hmm. And it's very siloed, right? Different studios have different tools. They often don't exchange information as much as they perhaps should, sure. which is, you know, the nature of competition. Um, but the reality is that there is not enough cross-pollination of ideas in games in general, just in general. Like, uh, I know a number of people from the IF community that went to GTC this year. Mm -hmm. And this is a point that Emily Short has made. Uh, she has a blog post about it recently. Um, she's constantly, and people in general in IF are constantly encountering this situation where you go to an event like GGC, an mm -hmm. event like Practice or Indicate, and you meet people from the broader indie game community or from the AAA development community uh, coming up with stuff that they think is new and revolutionary that has been known in interactive fiction for 20 years. Right. And similarly, you constantly come up, see people in the IF community or in alt games figuring stuff out about uh, user interface or user experience that people in mobile or in you know commercial game development know and take as given for a long time. <laughs> right. And the reality is that in the games industry, we rely a lot on conferences like GDC to trade information, and it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't accomplish enough. Do you think others, are, are other forms doing that sort of information trading in, in different methods? Like if I was working in film now. Well, the thing about film is that film is geographically concentrated, mm. right? 
everyone in film in the United States is in the, in the LA area, most of everyone. And those who aren't are mostly in the NYC area. Right. Right. Most of everyone in film in, in France are around uh, Paris. Film is, net, is geographically concentrated, so this exchange of people and ideas happens sort of organically. Right. In the games industry in North America and in the world at large, it's all very scattered. And so we try to cram that into a week at GDC. And it's really exhausting for people. <laughs> and it doesn't accomplish as much as should be accomplished. But also, you know, there's a lot of gatekeeping that goes on. Um, a lot of people in the IF community are women, are, uh, mm. are people of color, are queer people. And they are... and it is very, very difficult for them sometimes to get taken seriously right. uh, in the AAA gaming environment, you know, like GDC, we all and again, like, know what happens. What you mean when you say that is not, is not just like, oh, it's hard for them to find employment. It's that when you, yeah, no, when you it's don't have... Yeah, no, it's hard for them to say things and be listened. Including things that are simple as like, oh, your UI would work better if blank. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like... Uh, the experience that women have of you know going into a, a GDC party or a conference or a talk or any sort of event and being immediately presumed as someone who is there to learn and doesn't have anything to contribute in terms of mm. you know, teaching other people is something that I, I constantly see. Like As far as I can tell, this is almost universal. And so people who are at the margins of the broader development uh, or game uh, commercial video game development world are often have trouble just being listened to. Yeah, and this is you know this is people who can go to GDC. So in other right? words, it's you're not even just talking about the people who are stuck in you know living in a basement apartment somewhere. These are these are people yeah, who at least have like, the, like the, the, my travel costs to go to GDC are absurd. Right. Exactly. Like, this is something I cannot do. Right. Um. Even so who, who have who have quote unquote made it enough to attend at yeah. GDC still have additional hurdles. Totally, I'll link. Yeah. You know what? I'm gonna in the show notes. Uh, I'll I will link to Emily Short's post about the kind of um, recurring lessons that that people keep saying yeah. that they're learning for the first time, and the lack of kind of you know uh, formal memory, institutional memory in in the field. Because I think it's a fascinating piece. I read it last week. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, Bruno. I, I think this has been a great discussion. I, we could go thank forever. For sadly, my time is limited. Yeah, today. I know. Um, and I can't wait for you to, to write, write, you know, maybe even about, about uh, interactive fiction for us in the future. And, and again, I really look forward to doing that. Really thrilled to have you on the site. So thanks so um, much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too.